Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support film comment. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. This week, we have been recording at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, talking about the highlights in its independent film lineup. One of the movies I had been looking forward to was the new film from Kirsten Johnson. Johnson's first feature was The Incredible Camera Person, assembled partly from images she shot while working as a cinematographer on other films. Her new feature is called Dick Johnson is Dead, and it's innovative in a different way. It's a portrait of her father and her relationship with him as he faces the challenges of growing old. But part of how Johnson expresses this coping process is through staged scenes, sometimes showing her father in heaven, sometimes having imaginary accidents. The result brings us closer to both the filmmaker and her father, and to the inevitable horizon of mortality. At Sundance, after the film's premiere, my colleague Devika Girish sat down with Johnson for a fascinating discussion of Dick Johnson is Dead. Let's go to their conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. I'm the assistant editor. And this week we're reporting from the Sundance Film Festival. We're bringing you daily dispatches, podcasts, reports, everything you want to know about what's happening in Park City. And today I am thrilled to be joined by uh, Kirsten Johnson, who is the director of one of the most awaited films of this festival, and I think already one of the most celebrated films at this festival, which is Dick Johnson is Dead. Thank you for being here, Kirsten. I am so excited to meet you, and I cannot believe this Dick Johnson is dead frenzy, but I'm really enjoying it, and so is he. (laughs) Truly a frenzy. And, you know, I think I'm just going to be really honest here and say that we just are re-recording this bit because there was a malfunction with my Zoom, and I just want to mention that because... Uh, when that happened and I got really anxious, Kirsten just told me a story about how something similar happened to her as a camera person. You know, it's happened to me so many times. (laughs) I literally interviewed a 96-year-old man for four hours about his experience, a Senegalese man who'd fought in World War I in Verdun. I interviewed him. It was like the first thing I ever did, and I hadn't pushed record. Uh, So that's the beginning of my career, and I also had like a terrible moment of... um, not uh, recording Julian Assange while filming Citizen Four. Right. So, you know, been there. Yeah. Share, share. I it. just thought we should yes, let people absolutely. know. Um, but we're back in the zone. We're yes, feeling stronger yes. than and it's even all, what it's we recorded great. the last time. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to do it even better. You were here with Camera Person a few years ago in 2016. It played in New Frontiers. And then it went on to do so amazingly well. And it ended up on a lot of best of decade re- lists recently, including astounding. That's been so exciting for yeah, me. I've and, loved it, and including the film comment list. It, it's gotten so much love. And what has it been like to come back to Sundance? How have things changed? Uh, what's the experience been? Yeah, when we came with Camera Person, um, there were really four of us who had been sort of hunkered in together finishing it um Marilyn Ness the producer Daniel Varga the co-producer and Nels Bangerder 
the incredible editor who I collaborate with. And we just didn't know whether anyone would get what we were up to, but we were very committed to this idea of let me ask my questions in this movie and let us trust the audience. And wow, did that trust pay off with camera person. And, you know, I've just been so incredibly moved that the film connects with people. And that level of connection really emboldened me in making this film. And I said to myself, let me experiment in territory that feels even riskier to me. Let me, again, not know what this film will look like. And, you know, like we were talking a little earlier of like, it's a weird film. And I am so thrilled to make a freak of a film. Uh, and, you know, and to sort of not be familiar with it, not recognize it. Right. Um, yeah, I mean... Um it is like such a weird film, even explaining it to people. I've been encouraging people to see it, but just the log line, I don't know how to make it sound less trained. At the same time, I think the reason it's so moving and it connects uh, so much is because it's also capturing, to me, what is a very natural process of how you think about or contend with the impending death of a loved one. And But you were just telling me that that's not something that you do. You don't compulsively uh, Yeah, I'm think not about a worrier. Uh -huh. I'm not a worrier. I hadn't before this imagined anyone's death. You know, like, I, didn't, I don't imagine my own. I don't worry about my kid's death. I don't worry about my dad's wow. death. Yeah, no, seriously, I am, um, you know, I think I'm a little bit like the guy in Free Solo. I'm just like, what? I could do that wall without being connected to anything. Um, but in this case, the experience of living with my mother's Alzheimer's, like I really lived that one. And it it wore me out so much so that I just didn't think it was possible that I would have to do it again. Uh, so when there were like little, you get these little tiny warning signs with Alzheimer's or with dementia. And if you're not familiar with it, that you can not see it for years. But if you are familiar with it, you're just like, no. And like many things we don't wish to see, sometimes you can just tuck them away and be busy doing something else and, and try to pretend they're not there, even on an unconscious level. And I think on an unconscious level, initially, I just was not having it that I was going to lose my dad the same way that I lost my mom, not having it. Um, and so this fantasy emerged, this escapist fantasy that we could make a hilarious movie, that we could use stunt people. I mean, the initial pitch was I was going to travel all over the world and, you know, work with stunt people in Hong Kong and, you know, explode things and have dad catch on fire and push him out on an ice floe. You know, I really was going to take him to the far north and push him out on an ice floe. Um, and all of that was denial of the reality of his capacities. And so there's been this constant way in which the making of the film has allowed me to confront what is the state that he's actually in, but then also try to find ways to um, work around it to get at the essence of him. Hmm. And I think what is so fascinating about the film 
And what makes it such a delightful experience is that in spite of his deteriorating mental state, which you get to witness in the film, he's such an equal participant in your process. His insights are so sharp. He's incredibly self-aware. What was it like to broach this idea with him? What was that conversation? Well, I mean, thank you for recognizing who my father is and has always been to me. I mean, I just do think he has always been an exceptional human in that he's really interested in sort of the juicy complexity and contradictions of life, as well as the humor. Uh, but he's he's just like, he has, he's got no ego in it. Um, I think about, they're just slamming doors, <laughs> and it, it's really like kind of a noisy environment here, but we're handling it. Yeah. We're not stressing it, about it. A door's about podcasting. to slam. <laughs> um, but for example, I think many of the rest of us, if you were to say, you're at the end of your life. You have a, you have a reputation as a human, and you've had a uh, you've like an earned reputation of being a person of integrity who did a great job of being a psychiatrist your entire life. You stayed in a marriage for fifty years. You raised children. You you have a reputation as a person. The fact that I said to my dad, I want to make this. Can we make this film together? Where I'm going to kill you over and over again, and we're going to like make fun of death to just throw your reputation like to say like I trust you my kid yeah let's like and not to worry like am I going to be made a fool of is this going to sort of trash my my entire life I think my father he was he was like I want to be with you and do what you want to do let's do this thing together and that level of sort of selflessness around like this is his life right, right? This is the end of his life. It's not It's not a game. And that he was just like, I love you. Let's do it. Without hesitation. So it wasn't a long conversation, actually. He's just like, let's do it. He, he laughed. He laughed and he said, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, he just knows you as... As a filmmaker and as a person. I don't I don't even think like as a film... I mean, I think he's, cur he's curious. And he's willing... He's just interested to see where we could go and what we could do together, um, which is amazing to me in some ways that it's taken me so long as a filmmaker to express that kind of attitude. But camera person really is what taught me. Take the risk, ask the questions, leave, leave the questions out there. And actually, there's a moment in the film where you're talking to a nurse and you acknowledge that your father will do anything for you. He's selfless in his love for you. So you have to be careful about what you ask. Were there moments of that kind of negotiation? Um, did you have to worry about where you could draw the line? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I felt that this entire way through this project. You know, earlier I said, like, we had these really big ambitions for the stunts. But when we first got out there to do very simple stunts, uh, he's going to step out into the street and get hit by a bicycle. His dementia was so advanced at that stage that he was not staying on the sidewalk. He'd keep stepping out into traffic when we were like holding traffic back. So suddenly it was it was actually more dangerous. He was actually at more risk of really being killed while we were filming the stunts than the stunts not working. So, you know, in a moment that you're like, what am I doing? Like, I need to leave him standing alone on the sidewalk and then cue him to step into the sidewalk when a stunt bicycle rider is riding by. But he can't remember that that's what we've told him to do. He knows vaguely he's supposed to step out into the street. And so before we've controlled tra traffic, he's about to step out into the street in front of a car. 
So that's a serious right. moral dilemma. That's actually, I'm actually putting my father's life at risk mm. um, to make a film. And you know, these stunts, I mean, the whole film is kind of this elaborate movie magic stunt. And I, I thought it was very interesting. You you both in the movie you have a conversation when he's eating cereal. And he says, <laughs> he sort of questions the whole thing for a second. And you yes. say, well, we're being paid to do it. Yes. And, you know, there's so many indulgences, like delightful indulgences in the film that clearly you were able to do because you sort of had the budget. Absolutely. And so I am curious, when did the funding come in? And did that change anything? Did you have something different in mind before and after? Well, the terrific thing that happened was one day I got a call from Priya, um, who worked at Annapurna at the time, um, Priya Swaminathan, who, um, you know, is this incredible producer. And she just called me and said, I watched Camera Person. It was a cold call. We didn't know each other at all. She And we talked about Camera Person for an hour, and she was just brilliant and um she said, do you have any new ideas about what you want to do next? This, may I add, is the only person who called after camera person and said, what do you want to do next? Um, Interesting. And, yeah. Um, and when I told her, she said, oh, my goodness, do you know that I worked on Jackass? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she and I, right from jump, we're like, how could we make this happen? And by that time, I'd already had the idea to film my father's funeral. And so she got together with Chelsea Barnard and they pitched As the, in a, a made-up funeral. Yes, right. that's right. Yeah. yeah. And um, she and Chelsea Barnard at Annapurna went to Megan Ellison and said, um, could we support the development of this? So they got the money together for us to film the funeral. Uh, and so that was the first instance where I was like, oh, I have money to do something fairly ambitious. I mean, that was a five-camera shoot, and um, we wouldn't have been able to do that on our own in the way that we did some of the other stunts or some of the other documentary work. And then we were able to show that shot, funeral, to Lisa Nishimura at Netflix, and Lisa resonated with the project right away. And so then everything that, else just came after that. It came, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that has been really uh, a totally different. It's the first time in my career that I've had all of the money up front. Mm. And to be able to say, okay, we have a significant budget. What are we going to do with it? And then, of course, classic, I immediately discover that my father's dementia is far enough advanced that I can't do all those things that I right, wish to right. do. Right. So, but it has. it was always the case with this film as let my let my father's relationship with me lead the project. Let his state lead the project, um, and let the film teach us how to make it. So, you know, I ha- we all had to go with that. Hmm. And it, again, this film is so suffused with love for movie magic, especially how it intersects with our notions of life and death. I'm wondering, was there a moment when you were young when you realized movie deaths aren't real or a particular movie? What a great question. You know, I I, – such an interesting relationship I have to movies, right, because on the one hand I have this Seventh-day Adventist upbringing where movies are forbidden. And then on the other hand I have this sort of subversive father who is, you know – Oh, telling my mother that we're going to this Australian film series at the University of Washington and 
you know, I, I saw the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith and we, you know, one time my mom came and we were, we went into Mad Max and my mother was just like, what is happening? And pulled me out of Mad Max, you know? Um, so, so one of the films that I saw, not in the theater, but on somebody's VHS tape, um, other subversive Seventh-day Adventists, we watched Harold and Maude. And Harold and Maude absolutely thrilled me. Mm. Young Frankenstein had thrilled me. And um, then later in my life, I saw Groundhog Day. And Groundhog Day, um, for me, I mean, it's such an odd one. But basically, Groundhog Day helped me lose religion. You have to elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can sort of see where you're yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Well, I mean, the fact was I was a really earnest and believing kid. I, I really believed in God and I believed in Seventh-day Adventism. And I was – I also believed that um, God could see my thoughts before I thought them. That That's a Bible verse that says that. And um, so I felt like God knew if I was thinking anything outside of what I wasn't supposed to be thinking. So that construct is a pretty difficult construct to escape. Right. You know, you begin to question and then God knows you're questioning. So when I saw Groundhog Day, like, you know, sort of initially, you're, it, you know how it escalates? Mm -hmm. That sort of suddenly the idea, you know, where he starts to get to the place where it's like, oh, I could kill myself today or I could, you know... I could, and it won't matter. Somehow that resonated in me uh, of like, oh, if I, maybe God won't hear my thoughts this time. If I tried this thing, but I, the repetition, I needed the repetition, the sort of escalating mm -hmm. repetition to actually feel the possibility. And um, I got the chance to uh, have an amazing conversation with Harold Ramis um, at the Sundance Director's Lab, and I told him that story, and he wept. And I don't know what it connected to in him around religion, but he he said to me, I, I cannot believe that I helped you lose religion, and it makes me very happy. <laughs> But, you know, so so I think these things, you know, these things are deep in us and what cinema allows, it just allows us to imagine other people, but it also allows us to imagine ourselves in new ways. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our best of the decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our best of the year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Plus, Alex Ross Perry on screenwriting, Phoebe Chen on NYFF sensation Martin Eden, Albert Serra on the scandalous Liberté, along with the reviews, articles, and columns that make every issue of Film Comment a must-read. Support nonprofit, independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Right. And actually, one of my next questions was going to be the element of ritual in the film. What I found really interesting is um, when you set up the premise in the first sort of 10, 15 minutes, you introduce your father, you introduce yourself, and you say, I'm a camera person, you know, and that's just your basic introduction. That's who you are. And it felt like this 
you're a camera person, how you understand and know the world is through a camera and through cinema. And just like we all have these rituals that we do to make sense of death, your your ritual is through like movie magic. You know, you you're using what film tells you about life and death to kind of inure yourself to this possibility. And that was really it just made me think of film in a very different way, in like almost a spiritual way. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, I think what doing camera work has meant to me is that it's allowed me to go places I'm not supposed to be allowed to go. And, um, you know, the Green Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, which is featured in the film, is the place I really grew, I grew up in that church and I went to church every Saturday and I would sit in the pew and I would sort of fantasize about being able to move in the space differently. So I'd be staring at the stained glass you know, window with Jesus in it. I'd think about the pulpit and I would imagine myself walking across the pulpit or go, you know, walking across the front of the church or going into the sacred space. But of course that was not allowed. Mm. But then what I've experienced as a camera person is I have been allowed into people's sacred spaces all over the world. And sometimes that's just someone's home or that's their, you know, cell in a prison. Um, or sometimes it is their place of worship. But, you know, I have these like amazing experiences. It's like I'm allowed as a camera person to sit on the floor or climb on a piece of furniture or transgress the sacred space. And uh, so for me, that's what the actual physical process of filmmaking has allowed entry into sacred space. That's fascinating. And you actually also film in the church that you grew up yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe that I actually enacted it. Right. Like I actually transgressed the sacred space of the church and that we simultaneously did something sacred and sacrilegious. Right. And that is what I was curious about because I think in many faiths and for many people, that is sacrilegious to um, enact death or the aftermath of death before it has happened. And But you, you also managed to involve the community of people around your father. Everyone participated. I, I mean, I'm so moved by our friends and family uh, that they would allow themselves to put what is the most real and sacred thing for them uh, in my hands because, you know, a lot of those people are serious believers, not all of them. That church definitely is a sacred space for them. And their relationship with my father is completely sincere and sacred, and they are losing him. They know that. They they live through my mother's dementia. They know they're losing my father. So the trust and the love that people ex- extended to me is kind of mind-boggling. Like everybody said, we don't know what this is going to be. This is a crazy idea. Let's do it. But uh, were there any difficult conversations? There were some difficult uh-huh. conversations. There were people who thought that they couldn't bear to be there, mm. um, you know, and some people who had recently lost loved ones themselves. Um, you know, I had one family who have a son who's exactly my age, and he had just died. And to say to them, in this same church where you just had the funeral for my, your son, my friend, who died at age 50. Um, we're going to do this fake funeral for my dad. It was like, the, it was like it's tasteless. It's sort of obscene 
to ask them to come. Mm -hmm. And yet I did, and they came, and they're in the audience. And like when I see them, I could weep that they're there, you know? Hmm. And um, I, I think that it's interesting to encounter the film as a viewer. One of the things you're doing is playing with the expectations that we have uh, developed watching like horror movies. You know, I, I felt like I was constantly bracing myself for the jump scare of your father's fake death. Totally. And also not knowing when it was, if one of them was going to be real. You know, this just like I was kind of in the grips of that fear all the way through, even though I was enjoying myself. So that's like how a viewer would confront the film, but not you. For you... Well, not exactly, because I'm sort of in the jump scare of my father's life. Like literally, we're here at Sundance, and you know, my dad doesn't have any toes, and he's got teeny tiny little feet that he can barely balance on, and we're walking around on icy sidewalks, and you know, there was an orthopedic surgeon who was at um, one of the screenings, and he told me that GLFs, ground-level falls, are the most common way that people, that elderly people die, which is basically you trip and fall and hit your head or break your hip, and that's it. So I'm in the jump scare reality mm. of both my father's physical limitations, but also, you know, the dementia. Like, we go in the morning to get the car to drive. I drive with my kids and my dad and take them to school every morning. And a lot of times just when the parking attendant is like pulling out the car, my dad will suddenly like switch positions or move positions. And I can't even tell you the number of times he's almost been hit by our own car in the parking garage because his brain is not taking care of him. Mm -hmm. So I just have to like hold on to him at all times. So that is kind of my reality, actually, mm. that what I generated for people in the film of just like at any moment something could happen, which is also what's true about death, right? And about movies. I mean, that's totally. why it all sort of totally. just overlaps so yeah, beautifully. I know. It's um, such fun. I know. Uh, and then I was also wondering, so there's the film is kind of broken up into these various stunts, but there are moments where real life inspires the stunts and sometimes it's the reverse. Like one of the I mean, best sequences in the film is when you fake the silent movie in yes, the midst yes, of yes, Halloween. Yes. And um, so sort of elliptical when you're watching it and then afterwards you realize that it, it was inspired by an actual kind of experience your father had when you were out for Halloween. So can you kind of talk about uh, yeah. scripting these yeah. moments? Well, I mean, what's so exciting to me about this film as a, as a maker in terms of what it allows me to think about what I can do next is that I, I'm using my documentary strengths and those are I don't know what's coming when I'm filming. And that's what's so exciting about being a documentary camera person, that you're attempting to anticipate and yet you are never able to, which gives you the constant feeling that you're failing when you're a documentary camera person. It's like, ah, missed the shot. It's out of focus. I'm in the wrong place. I've got the wrong lens on my camera. You know, just constantly beating yourself up. The recorder up. is off. Oh, the recorder's <laughs> off, right? Exactly. So you're like constantly grappling with the like, I just missed it or, but also with the thrill of, oh, my goodness, I didn't see this coming. Now, I think that's what how death functions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also the pleasure of cinema for all of us is it's ahead of us. That as a viewer, you think you're keeping up with it. In fact, it fakes you out and gives you this unexpected pleasure. So I was like, oh, how can we do that with this movie? Um, so... You know, we use the word iterative a lot. But, you know, in simple terms, I would say 
back and forth, back and forth. We wanted to shuttle back and forth between the invented and the imagined, the lived, the experienced, the observed, which is like, you know, I'm trying to create these new vocabularies. Like, so it annoys me that we have like documentary and fiction or Mm. documentary and narrative. Like, I want new words for this because I think that the way in which we are isolating these genres is false in the same way that, you know, we're understanding what's binary about humans. These feel like false binaries to me. Um, So what I wanted to do, the idea was let's film what's really happening in my dad's life and then there will be an unexpected moment that happens. If we capture it in observational documentary, the viewer will recognize it as something that is really happening. And then if we can interject the future into that moment, i.e. the death or the fantasy sequence, that's the moment where the viewer's like, wait, what's happening, right? Which is what happens in the Halloween sequence because you're like, wait, I know this is constructed fiction, Mm -hmm. but that that he's experiencing in the car afterwards, that's got to be real, right? So that that, um, tension, I think... For me, I, I, we wanted to activate viewers in that way of like, wait, how how is this happening? Right. And I mean, I, I guess my takeaway from that was, you know, feelings are real. No matter what, <laughs> no matter nice point. what's yes. on screen, whether it's scripted or not, your response to it is real. And I was kind of sitting with that. Mm. Actually, I want to ask sort that's of a, a big... So I think that's really useful, actually, to all of us in making these distinctions between fiction and documentary. Feelings are real. We also can hold contradictory feelings at the same time, anger and pleasure. Right. Right? Well, also because the experiencing, experience of watching a movie is always present and real, right? And so I, I feel like this movie really made me give in to that, that reality and not try to pick, not try to sort of... Uh, like create delineations. Yeah, yes. I'm watching this and I'm feeling things. I'm responding to what's happening on screen yes. in this very moment. And those are real responses. It doesn't matter if this was a real or fake. Oh, fantastic. And, I mean, one of the things that we were thinking about, you know, is we all disassociate from ourselves and our feelings and also from ourselves and our bodies. Um, and if we feel that we are in danger uh, or that we are about to be triggered emotionally, sometimes we go into a real self-protective mode that doesn't allow us to feel, right? We're armored against feeling. So that was one of the conundrums for us with this film. If you know that dad might suddenly die, does that then uh, pro- do you then start to protect yourself from your feelings? And how can we allow you to relax and open up to your feelings and then still hit you with something you don't see coming, right? So that was something we thought about a lot because we didn't want people we didn't want people to um, be harmed in the watching of this film. <laughs> but we also didn't want people to be emotionally shut down. Right. And you asked me actually before we started this conversation why I told you I cried from the first to the last shot and you were curious because it made me so vulnerable and it like suspended me in that vulnerable state, which I, you know, it's actually kind of hard to achieve that with movies sometimes. Do you know how that happened? Do you know what it was? I don't. I think it's because when the film opens, there's just this such a palpable sense of love that 
a lot of people can attach themselves to, whether be, maybe because they relate or maybe because they aspire to it. And for me, it was personally, I can relate to having that relationship with one's father. And to have that love just be presented in this completely bare, unfiltered form, and then also not know what's going to happen to it through the course of the film. And I genuinely did not know how, what was going to happen by the end. And I think that made sure that I was constantly suspended in that state of, in, not I, I don't want to say the word enjoying, but being in the moment of the feelings that were on the screen because I had no idea what would happen next. And so it's it's almost like a life lesson in a way. You know? Oh, so thrilling to hear you say that. I mean, that's really deeply exciting to me. And I, and I do, like, you know, Buster Keaton is one of my favorite uh, screen presences as well as one of my favorite directors. And I just, you know, watch his films trying to understand what is it doing to me emotionally because, you know, he keeps himself deadpan and then he's just hurtling his body into these situations that are so absurdist and so cinematically brilliant. Like, so, you know, sometimes I'm just the pleasure that it gives me like with the general, that he's like got a train that he's like, he's like making a train do these things. You're just like, how is this possible? Um, so so, and it's because his physical body is at risk all the time that you you have to be in the present with him. Um, so that was something that I aspired to, and I and like the idea of like Buster Keaton is alive. He's alive to all of us, right. right? Buster Keaton has never died, even though he risked his body and his life all the time making his films. That for me was like when I linked him to the idea of putting stunt people in the film to dad, it was just like that was aspirational, hmm. you know? And dad couldn't do anything near the kinds of things that Buster Keaton could do with his body, but I felt like dad could do on an emotional level, he could take emotional risks on the level of Buster Keaton's physical risks. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I only have a few more questions because I know we're running out of time. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you... You a, always run out of time, I, don't we? That's the story oh, of no. life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You're going to make me cry during mm. this, this podcast. <laughs> what do you think I'm trying to do? <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask a big picture question uh, which is that you spent so much time as a cinematographer for other people's documentaries. And I, I guess that allows you to have a certain level of remove maybe in, is that not? No, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm shaking my head at you. Um, I, this is another like thing I want to break. Bust the myth. I want to bust the myth. Yeah, no, I actually really um, am strongly oppositional to that idea that uh, cameras create remove or... Um, you know, that sort of working on someone else's project is a step of mm -hmm. remove. For me, this technology, you know, you're, we're sitting here with a Zoom between us. We're wired with cables. We're talking into microphones. This is catalytic. We are speaking in a more direct and intense way. You're on the verge of crying in this moment because of this machine that's here with us, because this is a time machine. You'll listen to this in the future at some future date, I won't be alive and you won't be alive. Who knows whether this recording will survive us, but it might. Mm. So this is our future and it is also our death, right? And so those stakes are what happens when we film people. There's stakes. They know this may be the only image 
of them that exists. This may be the only recording of them that ever exists. Their child may come upon this recording sometime in the future and weep. You know what this just reminded me of? You know that Mad Men episode where John Draper <laughs> <laughs> pitches the, yes. the nostalgia wheel? That This was that. You sold Amen. me. Amen. Amen. Sold. But I'm glad you, you stopped me before I finished the question because I was going to ask if it was a change to switch to doing something personal, but you're... It, this is it all makes personal. Sense, which yeah. you said. Yeah. Um, kind of specifically, also was curious about the music of the film. Oh, like yeah. one of the ro- notes I wrote down in between my tears was yeah. just like beautiful score. Beautiful score. Uh, it's by a Japanese yes, artist. Yes. I don't know how to say their name. Sisigus. Sisigus. Okay. Sisigus, which is um, uh, two women who made music in the 1980s, and Nels Bangerter had found a piece of theirs. He just loved their music and had found a piece of theirs that we used in Camera Person at the very end of Camera Person, where this this shot um, in Liberia where I'm panning back and forth between people. And it's atonal. Um, this is incredible uh, organ that they've um, filed off all of the pipes. And it's, you know, like it's got, I don't know, 52 or 53 atonal pipes. Like it's like super experimental. And we suddenly realized like, oh, for camera person, we'd reached out to them for the rights to the movie. They've never scored anything for a film. But I reached out to this incredible woman, Hitomi, and she doesn't speak English. And she's actually married to uh, an American who is a retired uh, philosopher. We had an insane conversation about time, planets, uh, mortality that was so abstract. And then she watched the film and started coming back with these pieces of music that are so dissonant and so emotional and so unexpected that I just, I can't believe how much Sisygus cre- like contributed to what this film is. I'm so moved by their participation in this movie. Yeah, I, I think it's really lovely and very unexpected, but also cinematic. So it, it just works it's, so well for the tone of the film. It's got, it's just, it's got drama, but it's also like, Whoa, what's that? And whimsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always doing the like, where'd that come from? Yeah. Right. You don't see it coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally I wanted to ask you, how did you know how the film would end or when did you know to end it? Um, you know, the initial pitch for the film was I'm gonna kill my father over and over until he really dies. Um and yet uh at a certain point between the producers and Netflix, everyone was like, there's enough already. Like, you don't, we don't have to go all the way to the end. And in some ways, you know, I'm scared of the end. I'm scared of how painful this dementia is going to get. You know, my mother got to the state where she couldn't speak. And and we see that in the yeah, film. Yeah, and it's like, I was like, I don't really want to, like, I don't, I don't need my dad to get there for everyone to know it's going to get that bad. I mean, I think that's also my self-protection. Like... I, I, we still have him. Dick Johnson is still present in the movie, and in some ways, I didn't want to film him completely absent. Um, but who knows? I also feel like I may film more with him as we advance in this, and then that will have a different resonance at some point in the future. I mean, that's where Camera Person also freed me up in all these incredible ways. Like, basically, you know stop being so precious about material like all the footage and camera person existed in other films like a lot of times like we get really like this one shot we can't reuse a shot or how dare a person like take my footage and reuse it in fact you know like 
I've given now I've given footage I shot in Afghanistan to Carol Dysinger, you know, uh, for how her how to skateboard in Afghanistan movie. Um, Catherine Bostic, uh, who composed the final credits for Camera Person, reused that music in the Toni Morrison movie. Like I love this sort of fluidity uh, around material can mean different things in different contexts. So I'm thinking, you know, it's okay that I stop now with Dick Johnson still alive in Dick Johnson is Dead. And, you know, someday I'll have some new footage of Dick Johnson. Right. But did you know, how did you figure out where exactly to end it? Well, we knew we had to, like, do our best to really kill him off in the movie, to really let the viewer believe he is dead. And trying to figure out how to do that was super interesting. Um, we had initially, in the very, very beginning, I thought I was going to film the funeral while he was alive and then film a re his real funeral. And that would be the bookends of the movie. Uh. But then, in fact, we realized embedded in the funeral we had filmed is his real fu funeral. It is his real funeral. That funeral will never happen again, even when he dies. So I realized that could come at the end. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thanks in some ways to Jason from Netflix, who actually was one of the one of the people who was like, "Wait a minute, can't that go at the end?" Because for a long time the funeral was at the beginning. Um, so that's what I love about cinema: you just keep moving things around until you understand what order. And you really did fool us. I will say that <laughs> you got us. Yeah, yeah. And now, now I'm like, you know, it's so hard to figure out how to talk about this film. Like, are we spoiling it by saying this? I don't know. I know. I was yeah. thinking that too because you said earlier that. You wanted people to be kind of suspended in the risk of the moment. And yeah. that's what was so beautiful for me. Yeah. So a part of me is, you know, wants people to experience it that way. Well, we'll add spoiler alert on top of this. When right we on. It. Right on. We like you to experience the unexpected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten, oh, for making time. Oh, such a pleasure time. to talk to you. Yeah, I can't wait for future rituals together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm sure our listeners will really cherish this conversation. So thank you again. And now now and into the future when yes. we're all dead. Yes, forever <laughs> and ever. Um, and good luck with the rest of the festival. Oh. And I can't wait to see how the film does. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment.